Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Uh, pleased today uh, to be joined here on Earth Day. That's kind of appropriate um, to be joined by Dr. Jason Roundtree, Associate Professor, Animal Science, Michigan State University. Thank you for joining us. Hey, great to be here. Happy Earth Day, and uh, as well to all your listeners and viewers. Yeah. Um, so you, let's see, do I have this right? You coordinate Lake City and is it the Upper Peninsula Research and Extension Center? Very, very good. Yes, sir. Um, Lake City is uh, a research center um, through the experiment station. We call it the Ag Bio Research Center here. Um, we've got about, oh, five to 600 grazable acres there. I run about Normally, we can hit about 300 overall animal units, which are red Angus. Um, we're right on the 45th parallel, just south of Traverse City, Michigan. And oh. then the Upper Peninsula Research and Extension Center is in Chatham, Michigan, which is right outside of Marquette. Um, we get close to 200 inches of snow there, uh, high 100s anyway. And we've got another 180 to 200 uh, cows and yearlings on that place. So year-round grazing systems up there might be a challenge. They are. They are. And in fact, we are typically, if, if we can graze into November, we're feeling pretty proud of ourselves there. Um, at Lake City, many years we get into December. Um, once, maybe once in the last 11 years, we've gotten into January. But typically, you know, if we get, if we push 200 days in our grazing season, we're awfully happy. And I've only been to the Upper Peninsula once. It's it's remarkable territory. Uh, and 45th parallel is just up by Salem. So 45, I'm 45 minutes south of that. Yeah. Um, so remember when there used to be these th social gatherings called parties. Um, yeah. If, if, <laughs> if you found yourself at one of those and you wanted to introduce yourself to people, how might you do that briefly? I'm very uh, introverted, so I probably wouldn't say a ton. But, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> from a pro professional lens, um, my work is really centered on improving ecological function of agriculture systems. Uh, I'll use the term regenerative agriculture. Uh, often I'll try to add a little more descript description to that. Uh, but, but, you know, really, I, I, I really thrive at, at the, the junction of complexity of understanding the ecological, the um, socioeconomic um, barriers and, and challenges to, to food systems, right? And how can we break those barriers, not only from how we manage, but concurrently, you know, some of those others that, that dive off more into the economic and, and some of the, the, the complexity of social science as well. So you're in the animal science department. Is that your training? I am. Yeah. I uh, grew up, uh, interestingly enough, my dad's a dentist in Houston, um, Texas, and I grew up in FFA and 4-H, uh, loved exhibiting livestock in Texas growing up. And so we did that as a family and we went to all the big stock shows in Texas. And so I really came from a very animal centric lens, loved livestock judging, uh, was a part of that. I, so I got my undergrad at A&M, um, did a master's at Mississippi state and, uh, did a PhD at Michigan state. Um, very animal centric though. I was pretty much a very discipline-oriented animal scientist when I left. I did my PhD with Dave Hawkins and Gretchen Hill, who were really very well-known in the animal science. Dr. Harlan Ritchie was also a committee member and, and uh, did, did micronutrient work. Actually, I did copper on my master's, selenium on my PhD, and then went to uh, LSU and worked there for six years before coming back here at Michigan State. So why is selenium 
selenium is one of those interesting elements. I, to my knowledge, yeah. there's not a plant requirement for it, mm -hmm. um, at least that we've been able to find. And my knowledge may be a little out of date, but there absolutely is in animals. So yeah. what what is that? Well, interesting. Yeah. So Michigan soils are very selenium deficient. <clears throat> and so uh, my major professor uh, was, and I always, for some reason, even in high school, man, I'd figure out ways to kill, kill livestock. Unfortunately, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I <laughs> mismanaged, uh, you know, copper toxicities in sheep, for instance, or, mm. you know, I think we, and I think I induced a B1 a B1 deficiency one time. And we had some, some issues with blindness and land, you know, just things like I started realizing like, man, these minerals are vitamins are pretty important. Right. And so I kind of gathered and, and gained some interest. And so, yeah, here in Michigan, we, we do have issues with uh, white muscle disease and calves and lambs, which are indicative of pro-oxidative state because of selenium deficiencies. Um, and so I actually focused here on, you know, looking more aptly at, at thermogenesis and neonates. So effectively it was, you know, selenium is, is a big, in, a, a big regulator of thyroid hormone, which concurrently regulates brown adipose tissue metabolism. And so ultimately did some work there. Um, but, but, um, nothing that, a that a mucy or a bosi shot or a, a sodium selenite or is something that can't be rectified in a feeds in feed, but yeah, it, we are pretty pretty uh, deficient here when you get west and and you you see very variation but I, I there's actually some some good uh, dr kincaid that was at oregon oregon state or washington state one i forget now but did, did a lot of work in selenium back in the day there too yeah i think it was oregon state um i, I do know too, we've yeah. i think we've actually looked at at um applications uh for for fertilizing um as as one uh, okay uh, um, but again, that, that, that's been a while ago and the memory fails. Um, you were in Louisiana, mm -hmm. um, during some pretty significant events. Um, and I've read online bio that that was a trigger for you. Um, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Great. So, uh, I, I moved to Baton Rouge in, uh, Oh four and, 100% extension job, beef cattle. I also worked at a research center north of Baton Rouge, uh, Idlewild. Great, great, beautiful place. Um, Roland Hills, the Felicianas, right, right north of Lake Pontchartrain, getting close to Nat Natchez, Mississippi area, right? And and um, so, you know, I was just basically kind of like a status quo dude. And I always go back to Wendell Berry, who's, who made the comment. He said, land grant institutions are like airports. Once you've been to one, you've been to them all. And, and I kind of, you know, joke about that. I don't, I don't, I think that might be a little much, but the point being is I wasn't doing anything very earth shattering or creative. Right. And, and I, I, and I do believe still, but man, at that point in my career, when I was a pretty young guy, I was just hardcore by God, we are kicking butt feeding the world. This is the best food system ever. And, and, you know, didn't really understand aspects of resilience. And so effectively in 05, we got hit by Katrina and Rita, two massive hurricanes. Katrina, obviously a, a, a horrible urban tragedy, but Rita did a number on our agriculture in, in South Central Louisiana, right? And, and um, you know, and, and because of those experiences, what I didn't realize, nobody did, is that in Louisiana state law, it said that Extension personnel were considered first responders for food disasters. So um, we were su supposed to, I didn't know this. I don't think, you know, it's one of those laws or little asterisks you don't really know about. And, and so effectively, I was thrust in these situations, not really understanding how to respond. And later, you know, we come to find out, I get all these incident command trainings and all the things that, you know, first responders get, I hadn't had anything, but we were down South in new Orleans, for instance, right within a week after Katrina and just saw utter devastation. But, but the, the point I want to make is that, you know, we went from a first world, very cushioned society to an absolute third world country feeling 
in hours. And I looked around and there wasn't anything to eat. Here we were, a very, you know, agriculturally centric culture and um, very little to eat. We had, you know, corn, beans, wheat, we had crawfish, we had rice. And, and, and the point, though, is that I, I started to think about the difference between commodities and a truly intrinsic food system. And so it got me to thinking more about how to think about food systems in a local to regional lens to more aptly marry our big food system, which I believe we need, but, but also to nuance it with, with regionality to add resilience. I think we can all agree that COVID also exposed those challenges, especially, right, where, um, I don't know in y'all's neck of the woods, but here, um, you know, the only packing facilities that were actually running were our small and medium-sized ones, and they were absolutely overwhelmed. We've got mm-hmm. producers with livestock that have five head here, 10 head here that are that are being told that they've got to wait a year to get an animal to the to slaughter facilities, right? And that, that absolutely can't work, not only for a multitude of reasons, economics, mm-hmm. a huge driver. And, and so it, it shows then that we need to concurrently, I think, and in, 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 in not like pit big versus small, but, but how do we most aptly integrate the, the systems we need to, to, to add the greatest amount of resilience, not only here, but globally, right? And so that's where the real turn in my thinking came. And since then, I've been really studying that. One of the main books that hit me hard was Alan Savory's book, Alan and Jody Butterfield, uh, Holistic Management. And I absolutely loved the book, read it multiple times. In fact, I was a reader for the new edition that I worked with them on that that edit. And, and it really exposed me to systems thinking. And, and to understand that, you know, that that there's a lot of difference between an output and an outcome and an action and an outcome. And so I, I, I've been trying to, manage holistically as much as possible because of those kind of imprints that that, that type of substance systems thinking's had on, on my thinking. And subsequent to that experience, you then got the opportunity to to go back to uh, Michigan State. And yes. The the tradition so one thing is the the integration or just diversification of scales and enterprises i mean mm-hmm. that that um if if one region's agriculture is too highly specialized in one particular crop livestock system what have you then it's overly uh, susceptible to market shocks, to environmental issues, mm-hmm. um, changes in the marketplace, what have you. Uh, Michigan, by my thinking, is heavy on dairy, is used to have significant orchard crops, maybe still yep. with cherries, but maybe a transition in that. Um, I don't know what, what are other big crops in michigan uh we and you're very good right uh uh we are big in beans not soybeans but more um uh beans for human consumption black beans you know navy beans Hmm. things like that uh we're a leader in asparagus Hmm. a big big leader in asparagus um to your point of cherries uh we also have a vibrant apple industry only second i believe to washington um, and Michigan right now is the second most diverse agriculturally, uh, only behind California. And, um, so, but, but again, to your point, dairy, dairy rules the day here in Michigan. Uh, we are typically, um, I, I believe we're always a top five. Generally our, our cows typically tend to lead in overall milk productivity. Um, but, but a very neat, diverse state, um, uh, the lower half of the state is going to be more road crop driven. And as you get further North and some of these microclimates, uh, we tend to see the, the, the greater diversity, um, grow, grow some pretty good grapes here too. We have some pretty vibrant winery, uh, wineries, especially up on, on, uh, the North part of Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Hmm. Okay. 
it it came i don't know why it came as a bit of a surprise to me because i've for some time been associating your name with carbon sequestration work and for some reason assumed that you were a soil scientist yeah. um so uh, what at what point did you begin to sort of dig down underneath the forage and and start looking at the dirt? Sorry, soil. Uh, no, no worries, brother. Yeah, dirt's under your fingernails, right? Soil's under our feet. And um, yeah, I started really trying to figure that, like thinking more about it, that 2010, 2011. So working on 10 plus years, um, again, you know, the, the cool thing that I, I started to discover, right, is that my mind never, I never did really well in, in disciplines, right? I, I <laughs> is, you know, the thing that I learned through like holistic management and other things is I really began that one thing impacts everything else. And so we, we do a hell of a job in academia, putting everything in nice little buckets, right? And we do in government, we, we do in business, we do in everything, right? And, and um, so I think of that as, you know, the, the challenges, I don't want to get into system science as much, but complex linear systems, you know, hard linear versus complex natural systems. Well, agriculture is a complex natural system and how carbon cycles is hugely important, right? And um, in holistic management, we talk about it as the energy cycle, the water cycle, the mineral cycle and community dynamics, you know, the ecosystem uh, processes. And so, um, I started really being interested in how carbon cycled and could we indeed see animals as a benefit of improving landscapes potentially as compared to the oft uh, detrimental press and media that are typically out there that suggest our poor cows are ruining the world, which um, I, I really disagree with that statement, right? And so we started measuring um, in a systems way, had an awesome PhD student. Uh, her name was Dr. Marilia Chiavagato. She's now on faculty at the Ohio State University. And she brought a lot of interest and background from Brazil. And we started measuring methane and nitrous oxide. Methane is for your, your readers or listeners. Um, you know, we have the three primary greenhouse gas emissions that we measure in ag systems, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. Um, we put those on global warming potentials. Carbon dioxide gets a unit of one. Uh, methane gets a unit of 25 typically. So it's 25 times more the heat trapping or radiative or radiative forcing effects of CO2. Nitrous is normally 300 to one. And we can get into more of that later. But the point then is that I was interested in those gases and what was going up and then what's going down in the form of carbon. And so we started measuring and didn't, I wasn't near good enough back then. And I've gotten a lot better in the last 10 years. And so we've been measuring carbon pretty significantly, not only there, but I've, I've begun, I work a lot with the Savory Institute and we've been measuring in Africa and all over the world, you know? And so I've, I've gotten to appreciate the fact that, that soil carbon is probably one of the toughest, most variable things that we can ever measure. And unfortunately, we've now chosen that to be this high overarching metric of worth for society, right? Carbon. And it's the most ubiquitous, tough thing that we can ever measure. And, um, but, but it is enjoyable. And I think it's, it's useful because we do, our research does indicate that we can build significant carbon back in the soil based on how we manage livestock. So the soils of Michigan, and, certain, and this is going to vary depending on where you are, but some of those soils very high in organic matter in native state. Mm -hmm. uh, others, you know, maybe a little less, especially where you get into glacial moraines and things like that. But, mm -hmm. okay, so what happened to the organic matter that was in those soils that to then be, I assume that's what people are referring to when they say degraded? that we've yes, lost uh, organic matter. And so why, yeah. how does that happen? Why is organic matter important in the soils? A, a great question. And so going back to Michigan's history, 
Uh, Michigan effectively built Chicago and New York, right? With the wood. I mean, we were, we had the, 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 uh, the white pines. We were, had the redwoods of the East. Well, at one, at and, one point, weren't you the Northwest? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get, I, yeah, going, going way back. Right. Uh, so, so we had these massive stands of forests and being homo sapiens, um, we cleared them. And so you have to, you know, think that there were tens and hundreds of thousands of years of carbon cycling in those forested systems, right? Huge, massive amounts of carbon above ground, um, carbon being built below ground. We have very little native grasslands. There are some right along the lake shorelines. Um, and so, um, but, but, you know, really honestly, you know, the trees, I mean, we, we had glaciers on top of the state. So really like, as far as the most recent thaw and, and, and freeze and thaw cycle be 10 to, to 12,000 years ago. And anyway, we had all these trees that came up from that woodland bison, woodland elk, um, and that was cleared. And with that came a lot of bare ground. So there are actually areas in Michigan that when they, when the, the waste of those forested uh, harvests were burned, it burns so hot, nothing to this day even grows there. So we did a heck of a job of denuding the soil. And then what do we do? Well, we start cultivating it and we start cropping it. And so you then figure that we've probably had a, a hundred to 200 years of intensification of how we have, have treated those soils. Um, and so what we know about soil organic matter, right, is soil organic matter typically runs about 58 to 72 percent carbon based on the soil type. And really is that sponge, this beautiful mishmash of organic material, carbon, microbiology, uh, bound to inorganic particles in the soil. And that stuff is that aerated, beautiful topsoil that you think of when you're, when people are, are putting, you know, building their gardens. And, and that's, that's basically where a lot of the good stuff happens, right? And that's going to have a high amount of carbon in it. And we basically have, have mined it for lack of a better term. I don't really blame a farmer ever. I want to say that really up front, right? That I think our farms, we, we tend to, to look at a farmer and say, oh, what are they doing? Well, a farmer's in a really tough situation. And, and so we can go into that later. So it isn't the farmer's fault, in my opinion, really. But it, the point, though, is that through deforestation, through uh, intensive uh, cultivation, we've lost that carbon. And, and for a significant part of, I mean, if we say 150 years, um, and certainly this happened in the southeast and further east. Um, it was a very primitive form of agriculture. I mean, mm -hmm. that there, there was very little knowledge about replacing nutrients at least. And the no options doubt. for vegetation control were pretty limited. So you were going to plow, you're going to cultivate. Um, I think it was... Um, um, Dr. Hovland in his memoir of, of Sand Creek, um, that it was only when they got the cows that the quality of the soil and the farm that he grew up on improved um, mm -hmm. because of manure, because of that interaction. Um, you mentioned earlier, and I failed to follow up, about ecological function. Mm-hmm. So it's my perspective, and I it could be my bias, and I'm open to that. I always hold my hand up as as biased. Mm -hmm. I mean, show me a man with no point of view, and I'll show you a corpse. Um, but it seems that a lot, too many people look at nature as something without mankind anywhere involved in it. And yeah. it, it, which is which I don't agree with, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. And, and, and so ecological function and agriculture seems to be an oxymoron by that sort of perspective. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you mean by, you know, ecologically functioning agriculture? If, if in fact I'm remembering your point, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I am saying that we are managing our food systems in a way 
that is allowing the natural ecological processes of the landscape uh, function in a way that it's not only producing food, but it is um, maintaining or even regenerating itself in the process, right? So, you know, we, we again, we've got these four ecosystem processes. We have, we have the energy cycle, and that is obviously is is you know better than I, but it's the the aspects of, of photosynthesis and how photons are cycling through that system. But not only that, but it's also what's happening below ground as a function of that. The minerals are are the you know the nitrogen, the, the potash, all these other types of it could be the oil industry, frankly. Um, water, how the water is cycling through that system. And finally, the the beautiful symbiosis that we really can't linearize or, or compartmentalize, but the, the, but how biodiversity creates these stacked niches of productivity, right? And so those aspects reflect how we measure the ecosystem. And so a, a you know, healthy functioning ecosystem would be indicative that these four processes are all moving in a positive direction. And so to your point of nature, um, you know, Alan Saver used to always say that we are our own ecological selves, which in my interpretation means that, you know, for, again, for, for hundreds of thousands of years, Homo sapiens are, are, are part of the natural landscape. Only until we had industrialization uh, did we see humans actually leaving these landscapes and, and going into urbanized areas. And so for a very long, long period of time, um, humans were a part of the, the natural ecosystem. Did we do damage? Of course. Did we improve? Of course, based on, on scenarios. And so only in the very recent time have humans ever been separated and therefore we have nature. And, and, and so I, I think then that when, when I use the, you know, an improved ecological function as, as an indicator of that as, sorry, um, as you know, as compared to just saying regenerative ag, uh, which I, I do talk a lot about regenerative ag, which means regenerating that ecological function. Okay, um, did that make so, sense at all? Yes, no, it, okay. it, it yes, it does make sense. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll I'll be frank that I'm a little concerned about what I'm perceiving as the regenerative registered trademark that I see developing. In other words, it's, it, it yeah, it, we could talk, man. Yeah, I agree. I I've been in that space pretty intensively and it's, there's some questions out there for sure. Yeah. Um, so, okay. 10 years now you've been, um, you should pardon the expression digging into this. Um, sorry. Mm -hmm. What, or over the course of your, your, uh, professional career. What are what are some of the biggest surprises that kind of you? Let's face it. We design experiments. We you know we we have our hypothesis, mm -hmm. and we, we're we're sort of expecting it to go in a certain direction. We're not shading anything, but it's you know, and then something new pops up and sort of surprises us. It, any of those that are really front of mind for you? Sure, two two in, on hand. Um, one of which would be a life cycle assessment we did. We published the paper in Agriculture Systems. And what I effectively did is, I, I, my bias, I guess to, to say up front, is I love grass finishing, man. It is like, uh, I do a lot of that research. It's a passion of mine. I enjoy the challenge of correctly grass finishing a beef animal to a high palatability, right? And so we've done a lot of that work here. And um, concurrently, we've been measuring a lot of the ecosystem function as well as the greenhouse gases and the below ground carbon, right? So what we did, a wonderful uh, student who's now trying to finish up at Berkeley in their food systems program, but her name is Paige Stanley. She was a master's student for me. What we did is we effectively took uh, four to five years of data from our farm Okay. And we took our carbon data. Uh, we knew what our, our emission data was, but we actually used international panel of climate change modeling uh, and did a life cycle assessment comparing our grass fed cattle to our grain fed cattle. 
a few caveats. Um, always takes considerably less cows to produce grain finished beef because the corn and the higher energy allows those animals to be more productive in the feedlot. Therefore, we need fewer cows to produce the same amount of meat. Um, always think that. And in this system, we just looked at the finishing. We looked at from weaning to, to slaughter. So we didn't look at the cow side, which can add some caveats to the data. But our initial data said, hey, when you compare a grain-fed animal to a grass-fed animal, grain-fed animals, 40% more efficient. Nothing earth-shattering. We you know, pretty much know that. There have been some scientists that have thrown out like 100%, 150% more efficient, which is bullshit. I, I just don't agree. It's, it's crazy. But the point, though, is that importantly, what I also want to say is that when I inherited Lake City, we were a pretty conventionally managed farm. And we, we didn't really rotationally graze. We didn't graze to recovery, uh, meaning we, we, we didn't allow the plants to fully recover like what we want in a managed grazing system. Hate a lot, a lot of fertilizer, not to say that's good or bad. Uh, it's a tool in the toolbox. But the point is, is we we're pretty conventional. When I inherited the farm, I got rid of using all our fertilizers except for lime. I do use fertilizer to get some annuals started for cover crops to go behind the alfalfa rotation, for instance. But we kind of went cold turkey for the most part, really started managing our ground, increasing density when appropriate, our stock density, which is the pounds of animals per acre per day. And so we really changed the management considerably. What I found then is that through that management, um, the way that we managed based on the existing data is that grass-finished beef animal was a minimum of 40 up to 50% more efficient than the existing data in the in the in in the in the literature for grass finishing. We were we basically were finishing these cattle at 18 to 19 months, 650 to 670 pound carcass weights. Um, so that was a big outcome that we showed that through our grass, our grazing management, considerably more efficient than it, what I would deem a continuous set stocking, where we just turn the cattle out and kind of halfway forget about them or move them monthly. The second thing is, is that when we incorporated soil carbon, we found that in that time frame, we sequestered about three metric tons of carbon per hectare per year, which I'm sorry I can't talk in, in regular standard English units anymore. My mind always thinks metrics. But the point I want to make is that when we put that carbon offset on the grass-fed, the grass-fed beef went from being like 40% less efficient that is compared to the grain-fed to being a net sink of carbon to the overall grazing system, right? So we actually showed that for every kilogram of beef we were producing, we were offsetting carbon like five, five equivalents of CO2. So the beef actually went to being a net negative. Now, the caveats are we got to put the cows back in that equation. If I'm managing the cows in the same way I'm managing the yearlings, we get those ecological benefits. And, and so the real, the real detriment to that model is the land use. And that's always something that we have to be mindful of is that, so these beautiful things happen with this grass-fed system. We also did some land use balances and it takes about one and a half times the land to produce the same amount of beef as it did for the grass, for the grain-fed model, right? So we can't just have our cake and eat it too. There is some land right. use needs and balances there, but that was some big outcomes. We showed that managed grazing can really outperform, in my opinion, what the literature said about continuous set stock grazing. And we concurrently showed that we can even have our beef and completely offset the emission in the finishing phase based on how we manage. So that that article got a ton of exposure. It's, it's had a ton of hits. I, I've been really proud of it. Uh, congratulations. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes um, for anyone who hasn't already seen it. Um, there was one other issue that I think was pertinent, and that was that this was, as you described, on soils that had a lower than native organic matter content to start with. When we started, those they would have been like two and a half to three. And now I can tell you they're probably four to four and a half, generally speaking. Yeah. And and what would so it, it's my understanding that in every 
environment, a soil for a number of reasons is going to have some equilibrium level of organic matter content. Mm -hmm. is, is that something you would agree with? I, I disagree actually. Oh, okay. And, and the, the, the reason is though, is that I, I get it. it. It depends what fraction of the organic matter we're talking about. So see, like what, what I didn't realize and really what's only becoming more evident the last five years is that organic matter has different components to it. So when we typically think of organic matter, we often think of the amount of, of, uh, microbially and nitrogen facilitated binding of carbon to an inorganic particle in the soil. So the microbes facilitated by nitrogen promote the this very considerably less labile, more permanent carbon below ground. Okay, but we also have greater particle size or more labile organic matter called particulate organic matter. Now, that's often what we think about in the duff and a forested floor and things like that. But even in grassland systems, um, there's been data. I go back to Francesca Catrufo's work, really beautiful paper in nature. I, it's one of my favorite organic matter papers ever written. I'll send it to you. But she actually shows that throughout time, the particulate organic matter can linearly increase. Now, it is, again, more labile. But we, but we can continue to build carbon through more labile pools. What she also showed is that typically, and these are primarily in European, either in grassland or forested soils, is that generally when the saturation point does occur, which effectively means that there's no surface area on that mineral, mineral particle for carbon to be bound anymore, it's, it's maxed out, that normally doesn't happen until double-digit organic matter, which is 10%, which, I mean, how many agriculture soils in your lifetime have you seen that are double digit how many have i seen that are like low one two yeah exactly typically our our agriculture soils are going to be below two and often i believe in our perennials we can get much greater variation based on if they're natives or, or whatnot right so the point then is that even if we do see this saturation or this equilibrium it is going to be so far into the future, it becomes a red herring, I find, that generally when I have these debates on saturation and the animal's ability to put this stuff down, it's that typically people have a problem with the animal. And whether it's a, I don't want to go into those, those things, I can, but I have my opinions. But the point, though, is that we, it's like our national debt, man. We are so flipping far in debt. We don't even need to worry about when we're out of debt. Okay, it's going to be, it's just not, it's not even worth having the convo. And when I look at the lack now of carbon in our agriculture and, and generally our perennial soils, I don't even think of saturation as a barrier right now. Okay. So, and you mentioned that some of this is fairly new. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, um, what, and I guess that's a question that I ask is what, what do we know now about soil health, sequestration, ruminant animal system role in all that mm -hmm. that we didn't know, let's say, 20 years ago? Oh, that's great. Um, you know, it, that, that's a, a good question. I, I think that I would say that basically when I was like in the soils type classes in the nine, early 90s, uh, you'd have probably been in the eighties, maybe. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. We generally didn't even talk about organic processes in soil. It was all about the, it was the Albrecht, right? It was, it was, you know, the guy, the, the really great soil scientist from Missouri, it was very oriented towards micronutrients, towards pH, uh, you know, cation, anion exchange. So we looked at it from a very mineral nutrient linearity that, well, if you take a hundred pounds of this off, you need to add it back. And so that to me is a big difference, right? Where often what, what I found working with these farmers that are, that are really leading this space, not agri, not academia, academia is always the last ones to get on board. No government's the last one to get on board. Academia is just a shade in front of them in my opinion. But the point though, is that, Often what, what these guys are finding is that the nutrient demands tend to change a bit 
based on, on the types of nutrients that are being delivered to the rhizosphere of the plant, meaning a microbially processed nitrogen or phosphorus may impart a different effect on the plant as compared to a chemical one. And, and there's some differences then on how that affects all these cascading things like water infiltration and, and nutrient uptake, things that I don't even understand. So, but, but to me, that's been the main one, right? Is that we've left, not left, but we begin to tend to think about these soils in a more biological way versus a straight up um, linear way. But we know that's not new because shit, Al, Sir Albert Howard and you know, Aldo Leopold and all these classic Wendell Berry, all these classic people. Um, and even before that in native indigenous cultures showed the same things. I mean, you look and study how the Aboriginal cultures manage their landscapes, right? It, it, it isn't new, but it's, it's new to, to us, I think in our little window of time. Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, you've already, you mentioned um, looking at, systems in Africa. Um, I mentioned before we got started that I'm becoming more and more interested in global aspects of food systems, food production, yeah. as well as malnutrition and humanity's experience from uh, mm -hmm. the broadest possible definition. Mm -hmm. And and I wonder how uh, a significant amount of humanity that lives in low and middle income countries lives in mm -hmm. tropical, subtropical sort of environments. Mm -hmm. And uh, the brief experience that I had in Brazil was just how rapid the organic matter degrades in those soils, especially if they're not covered and if they don't have living plants in them. Um, so why would they be so much more rapidly degrading than soils in Michigan, for example? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know if they are or not. Um, I guess I know, was thinking soil temperature. I was thinking the highly weathered nature of the soil. Yeah, that. It, yeah. So there. Yeah, we can talk about that, right? Like, so I was thinking about it just from the organic matter. So you know, it, it's not really not a lot different from what I learned, like in living in, in Louisiana, being down yeah. in that area, right? Where mm -hmm. you know, typically, um, so you know, we there's a lot of chemistry that that does influence this stuff. Right. And you get pHs that are in the high fours. Well, that really alters your cation anion exchange and the availability of nutrients. And you get a hundred, 150 inches of rain and it washes away a lot of the good stuff. Right. And, and so I think what, what it is then I'll say this is that every ecosystem still is powered by those four ecosystem processes, sunlight, water, minerals, and the community dynamics how and where the log jams are, the function of that can be different. Often globally, it's water. That water typically, to me, is the lead challenge. But, but the point, though, is that in that context in Brazil, it is different than it is in Michigan. So what may need to happen is that we may need to use different tools to manage the soils in Brazil than we do here in Michigan. It may be that we get away with more in Michigan than we do in certain aspects of Brazil. You know, typically we we put this stuff like on a, a brittleness scale where um, one end of the brittleness scale is no rain and, and, and very, you know, very arid. Um, the other end is a lot of rain and very humid. But But not only that, it may be like in these cultures in Africa, they get a lot of rain, but it only happens in 90 days. Or 100 days so they're dry 200 to 300 days out of the year and they're massively wet so then all that rain they get runs off because they can't absorb it things like that right so so down there of course right like the beauty though in those environments is that if you can repair and address those log jams in brazil you know maybe it is a ph function so maybe maybe in that case using lime is is a really smart if you can find it and it's cheap, like it is here, it may or may not be, man, lime, lime may be a really great investment to allowing the natural ecology to, to perform better, to get more biodiversity going, to get these crops going or 
cover crops if, if necessary, whatever, right? Um, anyway, I, I could go on, but I do know this is that every system's different. And that's why we can't have agriculture policy that is led by check the box, like, like organic labeling or whatever that you can't till or you can't spray or you can't do whatever. And you get in and you start putting these, these crutches on people. Um, what we need to do is we know what the principles of improved ecological agriculture are, the soil health principles. And, you know, cover your ground, minimize disturbance, improve uh, living roots throughout the year, get animals back in those systems, you know, promote biodiversity. So no matter where you are, you're going to have different log jams to production. But if you keep those principles in mind, then you can apply them in the appropriate ways that make sense for the context of that environment. Well, to that point, there there are now ongoing and various levels of national and international society conversations about eliminating or reducing livestock agriculture mm-hmm. in the name of achieving certain goals. Um, I try to make the point that those ideas are not well-founded factually, um, that in fact... Thank you for that work you do, by the way. Excellent. Um, and and it's um, just channeling the work of people such as yourself and your colleagues and the students you're training, so thank you for all that. Um, it, it, what... What could we say to people who have this idea that cattle are this driver of climate change to mm-hmm. try to get them to maybe always assuming that they're open to considering new ideas, uh, which again, I'll put my hand up because I need to be constantly willing to do that Me myself. Um, yeah. But what what sorts of, you've already outlined some, are there other things that you would point people toward to kind of just consider some alternative um, data? Well, let's start globally and work back to locally, Okay. So from a global perspective, we know that 40% of the terrestrial land on Earth is inerable, okay, 40% of it. We can currently know that a billion of our poorest globally depend on livestock and their culture, and they're still very pastoral. So when, when you read papers that get published in Nature, for instance, like Ripple et al., I believe in like 12, 2012, that we need to get rid of half the world's ruminants to save the earth and because of methane. Um, they, they really, they, they really remove the culture from agriculture. Mm. So there's mm. that. We, we can currently know that a majority of these young kids that are growing in these, in these cultures are iron deficient. They're micronutrient deficient. Um, they aren't getting enough calories and there's not more nutrient dense foods out there than animal meats. And we also know that, for instance, beef has really high concentrations of manganese, zinc, iron. I mean, I can go on and on. Um, And so, you know, and in the cultures you work with, like I've been in, you know, working in Kenya or Zimbabwe or wherever, generally these cultures, cattle are their wealth. They don't trade in, in, in paper dollars. You know, they, they, they still trade with cattle and, and based on the amount of cattle you have, that is an indicator of, of your standing in society, whether that's right or wrong. And, and so we, we also know that like 80% of world's agriculture is still small shareholder farms that are reliant on, on, on ruminants. So there's that. Okay. So that's the global. So let's bring it closer in, Right. So we can go to papers like uh, in the proceedings for the National Academy of Science, the White and Hall paper that came out just a, a few years back that effectively said, hey, if we get rid of all livestock in the U.S., we get rid of them, eliminate it, uh, and every, every American ain't vegan, um, it's only going to reduce our overall emissions by 2.5%, uh, maybe 0.36%, 0.3%, 0.4% globally. And it's going to create all these micronutrient deficiencies and also 
create an, a greater reliance on pesticides, herbicides, chemicals. Okay, there's nothing novel about a soybean. There's nothing novel about a cowpea. Um, I never want to put a soybean farmer under the bus. We we use soy and our pig and our chicken feed, and we need it, right? Um, same for for the peas, but but just to to somehow create this facade that a burger out of soy or, or shit, we were eating that when we were in elementary school. There's nothing novel about it, right? So the point then is that we can though dramatically improve our production from a standpoint of the emission footprinting that we do get in meat and milk. There's always more room for improvement. In the US, and I'll hush after this because I can preach on this stuff, but in the US, when you look at our agriculture footprint, you and this is Obama, this isn't our last president, this is Obama's EPA, uh, estimates agriculture in the US is 9% of the overall country's emission. Of that, 60% is animal ag, and of that, another 60% is methane. So we're talking a few percent. We also know, and I could go into the science of it, methane is broken down rapidly in the environment. It's a short-lived greenhouse gas. It's broken down in 10 years. That CH4 is broken down into carbon dioxide and water. That CO2 is recycled for photosynthesis. The water is recycled as a rain event. So to blame the methane from cattle on all these destructive things from a global warming potential perspective is not provable, in my opinion, in the science. What has happened is we've completed that methane with the methane from the natural gas and the oil and the other industries, fertilizer industries as well, that are going up. And then you've, you've got this, oh, we got to lure all this stuff. Well, these damn cows are the problem, hmm. which is not true. But that that's... Yeah. That's my daily life right there. I hope I didn't go too preachy on you there, man. Oh, amen, brother. Um, okay. I it's I have several more that I add. You know, we 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 should not treat animal source foods as if they're equivalent unit for unit with plant source foods. They're superior. No, it's it's not. Dude, three it's, cups of quinoa takes three cups of quinoa, six hundred calories to get the same. Protein is 150 calorie serving of beef. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. let's see how your insulin's doing, right? Over time. Exactly. And, and, exactly. Anyway, sorry. You got me going no, again, Brett. Yeah. That, that's yeah. fine. Um, it, but but we need to find ways to get this information to a broader audience yeah. that, um, and, and, and yet the challenge is to not speak from beyond the data, um, which is right. a challenge Agreed. because we're often engaged with people who are. And so our response might be to try to do that. There's always going to be a lag. It takes yeah. a while for us to get the data. Um, we're in the problem we're in because I think people in many cases spoke from beyond the data. Um, mm -hmm. um, so, We've covered a lot of territory, um, yeah. and I haven't even begun to to talk about your paper, which came out in December, Ecosystem Impacts and Productive Capacity of a Multi-Species Pastured Livestock System. So maybe this is uh, a good way to get toward the end, um, because there, there's a comment at, toward the bottom of the first page, these complexities must be considered in the global debate of agricultural practice and land. What are those complexities? Because I found that fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we know that the you and I think we've we've really kind of loosely talked about that in the last hour, right? That what happens in one part of the world may or may not work in another part of the world. I know this, man. When I'm on all the commodity calls, and by God, we need to have U.S. agriculture all throughout Africa. We, we know that doesn't work. The the there isn't paved roads and refrigeration in, in many areas of Africa, right? There's so so when we talk about the complexities of agriculture, um, we tend to, to put it in these very simplified buckets or silos of how we should feed a population. And, you know, for instance, let's talk about eating only vegetables, okay? Um, there isn't, in my opinion, a more extractive way to grow food than to grow vegetables. 
to grow organic vegetables. That's even more extractive than, than to grow commodity vegetables because in order to grow typically organic vegetables, we're tilling more, right? We're, we're breaking up the soil. So, so what I want to say then is that when we talk about complexities in food systems, there is this, this aspect of the different environments, the different soils, the different needs of the community. There are aspects of wildlife and, and the, the interface of how we grow food with, with the, the aspects of the different wildlife and the biodiversity. Um, and it, it's just quite, quite um, complex. So if I could then to, to come out and broadly use like the eat Lancet diet or, you know, some of these aspects that say we need to reduce beef or eating meat by 90% and we should feed all the world this other way. It again, it avoids that complexity and that difficulty of what works. And, and, and honestly, then I think that, um, we, we just need to give honor to, to that. And that complexity, you can call it nature. It's Earth Day, right? Uh, it's whatever. And um, I could talk a lot more on the paper we did, or I can come back and chat another time. But um, either way, I, I've got some more time. But, but the point, though, is that it's, they're, they're, you know, agriculture is a complex natural system. And it's like our forests. It's, it's like our, our, our water systems. It's super complex. and the computer that you and I are using is, is, a, is a system, but it's linear and it's hard. And, and mankind has done a hell of a lot job, better job of making computers and putting people on the moon than it has managing our complex natural systems. Mm -hmm. And we tend to have seen these degrade over time, right? Like our water quality, our water quantity, these other things. And, and it requires a more holistic lens, I think, long-term of addressing that complexity. But I think we can be smart enough and hopefully do it. And, and I, I would welcome the opportunity to talk more in the future. The, the, the thing that rang with me is, is this idea that society writ large often has contradictory goal desires or asks for people who are attempting to make a living on the land. And so they, um, you know, they want affordable food that's available when they go to the market and they want it of a certain uniform nature. And yet they also have this image in their mind of the way people should be doing it and not realizing that sometimes those points don't align. And so then comes the hard question, which would you rather have, which is more mm -hmm. important to you or what mix of those things? And I guess yeah. that's a point that you made earlier with the diversification right. integration of styles. Um, Great. I mean, yeah. If I could real quick. Um, so in that paper, like that's one thing that we did talk about, right? Is that again, this farmer, massive diversity, he's uh, like six or seven different species of livestock on one farm. So what we did again is that life cycle assessment. We looked at carbon cycling, et cetera. And this person was building carbon, growing food, doing it without a lot of inputs and absolutely regenerating the, the landscape, hiring people to work in small packing facilities this wonderful oasis of local to regional food in a pretty depleted area, economically, ecologically, educationally. But again, so you've got this wonderful concept here, but again, it takes one and a half to two times more land to produce a pound of chicken or a pound of pork. So society can't, can't say we want all these things without having to make some decisions and to make some allowances that, well, big ag is efficient. It, it does require a lot of fossil fuel, but it's massively efficient. So because of that, if we grow more food per unit here, it may take away from that rainforest that's being cleared in somewhere else because we're not producing as much. So there's these huge unintended consequences of land use changes and, and these aspects of of, that we run into, right? And so it, it becomes really challenging. Um, it's, 
what is is it a, a wicked problem? Is that the right term? Um, it, the, indeed, the complexity. It is, yeah, I, we've. I hear my deans talk about that word. I, I, deans have used the term "wicked problems" for twenty years, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but yeah, it is. It is, and it's 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 something that we don't have a straight up linear response to. It's it's complex, and um, one of the best books I've ever read on this stuff is by a woman named Rebecca Costa, a book called Watchman's Rattle. And she articulated these memes, these super memes that pervade society and therefore don't allow us to, to continue to progress. Mm-hmm. And this was in, in response to climate, right? Into addressing these problems we see with, with the changing climate, you know, and, and that, that there are, there, there's these pervasive memes or thought processes that disallow us from moving forward. It can be economics. It could be silo thinking, you know, there it can be a multitude of them, but often that those are these barriers and these things we run into it could be spirituality or, you know, culture, other things, right. That, that can hold up doing what we know we should be doing. Dr. Roundtree, thank you for your time. Thank hey, you for everything you've been doing. Um, really appreciate it. You bet. Um, um, good to meet you. Again. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. And look forward to visiting your part of the world. Um, Come out. Um, Love to have you. Excellent. If if you'd like, if you have any questions for me, it's fair to open myself up to that. Otherwise, we'll let you get on with your uh, afternoon. Yeah, no problem. Man, I, I felt like I rambled a little bit. I hope, hope not. So. You're, you're fine. Uh, okay. Uh, and um, um, where can people learn more about your work, what you're doing, um, the centers? Yeah, I typically, um, I can send a couple links. I, I, I typically like, I'm not a very good extension person because I kind of like to operate as a ghost, man. But um, but ultimately, um, I'm really behind on that stuff. But I'll, I'll send some links that have some of our data on it. 